the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. No more perfect kids. I mean, let's just be done with it, shall we? In fact, maybe as parents we need to admit that um, our expectations don't always line up with reality. And and the other issue here, too, is we were discussing with um, author Jill Savage, who's co-authored the book with Kathy Cox, um, called No More Perfect Kids. Perhaps, too, it's a matter of uh, prioritizing. And by that I mean, Jill, perhaps the frustration here is we look at them as our kids. You know, we, we raised them, we fed them, we clothed them, we pay for them, um, we nursed them when they were sick the whole nine yards uh, or the whole nine months in the case of mom. <laughs> and at the end of the day, we kind of treat them as if they are our own when in reality they were God's children first. Is that part of the issue here that we're maybe failing to recognize that God has endowed them with talents and skills and abilities and he has a plan for their life and a calling on their life that perhaps doesn't match the one that we've come up with or conjured up in our own minds. Yes, absolutely. You know, Psalms tells us that uh, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And as parents, our job is to discover how our children are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's really the journey that we need to be on. And uh, one of the things that that we talk about in the book is we talk about the concept of um, that culturally, we believe that there is something called, that we've dubbed, the perfection infection. And the perfection infection is, surrounds us all the time. Uh, we are, uh, you know, we, we go through the checkout line at the grocery store and we see the front of magazines that talk about perfect bodies, perfect families. Um, you know, they, they give the, the, um, the perception that perfection is attainable. Uh, we watch a television show, we watch a sitcom, and a difficult issue is solved in 30 minutes. We watch a movie, and a difficult issue is solved in two hours. And that's not the way our real life is. And so without realizing it, we often put some pretty unrealistic expectations on ourselves as well as our kids, and then we leave God out of that picture Mm. because we begin to make an idol out of pursuing perfection or in some way presenting perfection to the rest of the world. And I think social media adds to it as well. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's very common to see on Facebook, hey, I'm so proud of my son. He made the honor roll. You don't very often see on Facebook, well, today was such an enjoyable day. We got a phone call from the principal because of uh, something that our child did at school. You don't see that very often. So we are constantly um, comparing our insides to other people's outsides. Our, our, we're comparing our children's behind-the-scenes behavior to other people's, um, you know, I would call uh, highlight reel behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, their, their kids seem to behave well when they're in public, and we know what ours do behind doors as well as in public at times. 
So without realizing it, we often put some uh, really unrealistic expectations of ourselves and others because of the perfection infection, and then we leave God out of the picture. Well, and then there, that leads to a point that you discuss in the book, and I have to tell you something, uh, Jill. My hand's off to you and your co-author. Um, and you imagine down through the years, I have interviewed thousands of uh, parenting experts. Uh, you know, many that the listeners are very well familiar with. You know, up to including the you know the Jim the uh, uh, Jim Dobsons of the world and so on and so forth. But you bring up something in the book that I've never seen articulated in a certain fashion before that ought to set every parent back on their heels, and that is this. Um, we do a lot in terms, as you suggest, of wanting to uh, see our kids. Uh, be more successful at life than we were. We want them to have advantages that we did not have. Uh, we try to pass on this sense of uh, of perfection, as you suggest, that oftentimes can be very frustrating to a child when they don't have the capacity to be able to to match us in that level of perfection. We're trying to create kind of a, you know, Martha Stewart kids, I'll call them, you know? Right. They're capable of doing everything, and they do it perfectly. That's what we want, but of course, we also understand that that's not reality. But meanwhile, Meanwhile, as we're trying to kind of force this false dichotomy, this false um, paradigm on our children, it can be very, very frustrating for them. And you ask a question inside the book that I think every parent ought to really ponder, and that is simply this. Of course, we want to say that we love our kids. And most kids, I think, if they stop and pause, uh, will say, yeah, I know I know, I understand in my heart of hearts that mom and dad love me. That's not up for debate. Here's what's up for debate. The big question that I have that's unanswered, and that is, do mom and dad like me? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and the answer to that question and how our children would respond to that says so much about our parenting skills, doesn't it? It really does. And it, it, it really doesn't. And it doesn't matter what we... Um, what we say, like, you know, it, yes, of course my children know that I like them. The bigger question is, would your child really be able to say that? Uh, the, the bigger question is, how do I make my child feel? That really says a lot about our parenting. And that's why uh, in No More Perfect Kids, we also give parents the antidotes to the perfection infection. And those antidotes, uh, spell out the acronym C-L-A-P, so that we can celebrate our kids. We can clap for our kids. And C is compassion, to see the world through their eyes, to build a bridge into their reality, to have a sense of compassion and empathy for them. And this isn't um, about a popularity contest. I mean, some parents would say, now, wait a minute, Craig, how dare you suggest, you know, my job is not to be a friend to my child. I am there to be their parent. I have to be able to be the one that will give them guidance and correction, draw the line in the sand when need be, provide discipline when necessary. I am not so concerned about whether or not my kids like me or I like my kids. It's important that they know I love them, but I, at the end of the day, have to be the parent. And while all that is well, good, and very accurate, there is this little subtle thing going on where the child can walk away as you're, as you're pushing this sense of, of your perfection on them and trying to create a child that lives up perfectly to your standards, that a child can walk away readily and really, really have a big challenge here emotionally thinking, I know mom and dad 
love me, but, you know, I I didn't turn out to be the lawyer that they wanted to be, but I'm a really good artist, so I guess maybe they love me, they just don't like me. Wow, what a, what a burden that is to carry as a child. It really is. It really is. And, you know, I... I mean, I am a firm believer parents are not designed to be their children's friends. I mean, all the things that you just said, I would absolutely agree with. Uh, Before I got serious about ridding myself of perfection infection parenting, I was a buck up mom. Buck up. Move on. Life, sometimes life's hard. I was just a buck up mom. I didn't have a lot of compassion. I didn't have, now I, I gave my kids direction. I gave them uh, certainly a structure in their lives, but I didn't really know them. And that's where, that's what we're talking about in No More Perfect Kids is a balance between that. Uh, Certainly being the disciplinarian, being the leader of our children, but balancing that out with truly knowing our children. Well, and you know, that leads also to an important question that we can uh, elaborate upon when we come back after a brief time out, and that is, Parent, ask yourself this question. Is the, the time in your relationship with your child when you give them the most attention just the times when they're in trouble? Ponder that as we'll take a time out and come back to more of our conversation. Jill Savage, the co-author of No More Perfect Kids, Love Your Kids for Who They Are. We'll take a brief time out, then back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, let's talk about some of the challenges when it comes to parenting and the whole issue of expectations. I think as parents, we all bring children into this world with a heartbeat, with a desire to want to see our kids successful. You know, we want the kid that will grow up to be uh, the doctor or the lawyer, and yet sometimes they grow up to be the artist. And in that comes a sense of disappointment we have as parents, than to beyond the notion of our ideals for our children not necessarily matching their ideas or their goals. And there's the sense oftentimes you hear of parents who try to live vicariously through their children. Yes, we want a better life for our kids. Sometimes we want our life or the life that we thought we should have had growing up ourselves for our kids. And then the frustrating level comes in when, as parents, we try to raise perfect little children and yet they turn out to be less than perfect. Is that a fault of less than perfect parenting? Let's find out as we are encouraged to, quite frankly, kind of uh, rethink our thinking and um, realize that we need to love our kids for who they are. We no more need to worry about perfect kids. Jill Savage is the co-author of this new book. And Jill, great to have you on the program. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Jarell can't. Ah, there we are. Sorry about that. My headphone, for some reason, suddenly failed on me. (laughs) Jill, let's talk a little bit about first some of the ideals that parents bring into this job as parenting. You know, I I think the the notion that we want a better life for our kids. I mean, that that stands to reason. Um, Oftentimes, we want to see our kids grow up to uh, to have better opportunities or be more successful, either economically or or socioeconomically than than we were coming up as our kids, and yet suddenly this goal toward creating these perfect little people can become very frustrating, not just for ourselves, but also for our kids. It really can. 
And you know what happens as parents is, um, you know, particularly with that first child, uh, that child is, you know, either you're spending nine months uh, preparing for them, you know, as, as they're uh, growing in your, your belly or they're, you're preparing nine months, 12 months if you're adopting. And you are imagining what life is going to be like with them. You're imagining what they're going to be like. You're imagining what they're going to like and the things that you're going to do together. And that's all great. I mean, that's normal for parents to dream. But then we meet our real child. And all of a sudden, over time, as we get to know that child, often the imagined child doesn't match the real child. And so at some point, we really have to separate those out, and we have to embrace the real child that's in front of us who may not look anything like the imagined child. Uh, their, their likes, their dislikes, their abilities may not be anything like the imagined child. And so we have to be willing to embrace the real child standing in front of us, recognize they're going to be different than us, they're going to have different goals and different dreams and different talents, and uh, be able to lay that imagined child uh, to rest and really embrace your real child that's standing in front of you. And, and that's uh, one piece of No More Perfect Kids that we look at is uh, really coming to grips and loving our real child. Is this an issue that a lot of parents struggle with, a sense of failure perhaps, because as, as the child reaches a certain age, they, they, they compare the, the imagined child with the reality of what is standing before them. And when one image doesn't match reality, do they get oftentimes get very depressed at the sense that I've somehow as a parent failed my child? I think some of us uh, look at it through the lens of failure. I think uh, others of us look at, at it through the lens of disappointment. Uh, I think some of us look at it through the lens of uh, still trying to make the child into something that they're not really designed to be. And so we become more controlling and uh, demanding the, of, of the child. So I think there's a lot of different ways that uh, as parents we can respond to this but the most important thing for us to do is to really study our child, get excited about the way that God has created them uniquely. It may be very different than the way he's created us. It might be somewhat different than the way that he's created us. It might even be somewhat similar. Who knows? Uh, one example, I have five children, and uh, four of my five children are musical, and so am I. So I was actually have a degree in music education, and, and so I, I loved that for my kids. I wanted that for them. Um, I was trained to, to play the piano classically. I can You put a piece of music in front of me, I can play it. Uh, most of my kids play by ear. They don't want to mess with the music. They want to hear the music, and then they want to be able to sit down at the piano and do it themselves. I can't do that. My ear is not trained. I don't have that inclination, but they do. Now, it used to frustrate me because, honestly, they really struggled with lessons and learning the classical side of things because they wanted the freedom to be artists. And I was really frustrated with that until I realized that I was trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And I needed to let them be the musicians that they were, which is very different than the way I'm a musician. And you mentioned um, 
that this it, this follows four of the five children. Now, what about the fifth child? <laughs> well, the fifth child has absolutely no inclination towards music at all. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, and he had no, he took piano lessons for a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, it became very evident that it just wasn't his thing. Uh, he loves to work with his hands. He loves to build things. He loves to... Uh, run. And so those were, uh, you know, those were skills, talents that uh, I didn't share, but I had to embrace in him. And so, you know, after he did an obligatory year or two of piano, and we, we really studied him and said, you know what, this just isn't a good fit, then we had to let that go. There has and to be some sense of surrendering here, too, then, doesn't there? I mean, in, in, in the sense that at the end of the day, what we want for them and what they want for themselves or the talent, skills, and abilities that God has, has entrusted to them may not be necessarily the ones on your list. You're right. So surrender is a piece of it. And the other thing that I think is important is sometimes we do have to grieve. Sometimes we actually have to grieve the imagined child or the imagined activities or the imagined way that we were going to interact with our children, we have to grieve that. Um, maybe, you know, maybe your child doesn't share any of the same type of hobbies or interests that you have, and you always pictured that you would be able to do X together, and, and they don't even have any desire to do X. Uh, maybe you're dealing with a special needs child. Special needs parents really have to come to grips with this because, that, you know, none of us imagine ourselves having a special needs child, a child that's handicapped in some way, uh, that has some physical or emotional or mental challenges. And so uh, as parents, it could be as simple as our children just have different skills, gifts, talents, wiring, temperaments, personalities than us. And it could be something all the way on the other side of the spectrum uh, where, you know, a parent is dealing with a special needs child and their life doesn't look anything like what they thought it would. I would suspect there's a big point of perspective here that parents need to be reminded of. I mean, this notion that when kids grow up to be an artist, when what you really wanted was, you know, a doctor or a lawyer in the family, uh, dealing with that disappointment and gaining some perspective on, on really kind of the priorities here. We'll talk about that when we continue our conversation after a brief time out. Jill Savage is with us, co-author of No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. We'll take a brief time out. Come back as we answer the question, okay, so when your little artist fails to be the doctor or lawyer that you wanted, what's God telling you on all this? That is this edition of Lifeline with Jill Savage continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day reaches retirement age, it begs the question, 
How do we go about focusing on ministering to this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of, of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have uh, as con- active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ, but then, too, what about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and, and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique spiritual needs. We're talking about that in this segment of the program with us, Dr. Michael Parker, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. Let's talk about this. You know, every church uh, pretty much anywhere in America has a youth ministry or a young singles group. Are we going to see the day, Dr. Parker, when many churches will also have an older adults ministry? Yes. In fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry uh, from our experience. Uh, but the, the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our, in our seminaries, and we're not preparing people for, that, for the fact that people are living so long. And so that's kind of an area we've been working on. And if, if you look at something even um, as challenging as a disaster like Katrina or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa, seniors... Uh, uh, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70% were seniors, and 80% of those dear people belong to congregations. And so one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have kind of a, a safety net to older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there. And really, I think you know, our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe you know, in, in the event of a disaster. Uh, here in Tuscaloosa, where the F5 tornadoes hit, in one uh, church alone, we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes. And they weren't directly related. They were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado, and they didn't adjust well. So that's just one small area that I think churches can step up, um, helping. The, you, you were talking about some of the statistics. You know, some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two-thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease. And we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory? And for a Christian, it's the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, their memories of Scripture. What assurances can we give them? And so the co-author in our book, uh, Jim Houston, who, by the way, was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has, you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a a theology of dementia. And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, is that they're remembered of God, and they can trust Him. And that's just one nuance, again, of how we might develop some ministry. Do we also need to see, you made reference to the issue of seminaries and 
schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry. Do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker, of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do, and we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, the growing number of centarians, for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of the demographic within our congregation. Well, pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and, and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians. Absolutely. And, of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, they have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it on, uh, from a positive point of view. We can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, you look at examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who are, um, who their notion of retirement is not age-graded. You know, we we live in a very age-graded uh, society, and our seminaries are not immune from that, nor are our churches. We think we, we go to school, we go to work, and then we retire. But the truth is, we, if we're lifelong learners, we go to school our entire lives, uh, we really work our entire lives. And, and you know, so the, these are structures that are really lifelong. So we, we go to school, we work, and we um, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work and the church needs to challenge you know to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages and be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs help us uh, you know do some late life planning end of life aging in place initiatives uh, helping people prepare for uh, uh, caregiving and now we're talking about you know, middle-stage adults who are worried about their aging parents, and then challenging the, the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their, their long-term care plans. The long-term care industry in this country is broken, and it's in trouble. And, you know, when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of 65 than we have 18 and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table, and we, we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around, these elders are long, around longer and can help us. So, you know, involving them in uh, small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints and putting it to film. And there's a lot of work being done in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is uh, 
encouraging to that person and affirming. And uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations. Developing a vision for the aging church, renewing ministry for and by seniors. New book co-authored by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Michael Parker. The new book, by the way, published by University Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And Dr. Parker, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population, typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. Mention that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led. Think about um, the shortness of the time that you have left and questions with regard to the the significance of your life and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care, <coughs> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a you know very... Uh, and with an outstanding uh, department of uh, division of geriatric medicine, so I have a joint appointment. This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture. I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a, a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that He's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we we haven't kept, you know, captured that yet. And so, what we want to do is is think about ministry from seniors first, and then during that final season of life, ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it um, if you make it to sixty-five on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years. And four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, if you're a man, you, on average, you live uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, 
you know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home. And in the opening introduction, he, he writes, All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had, because I'm an old man now, and believe it. it believe me, it's not easy. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision, that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say, we need you. And, uh, and then there are very specific things over the 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was was on active duty, and uh, I was uh, assigned to Seventh Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm, and my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral, and when I flew back to 7th Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging Postdoctoral Fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted and then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department, and I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed. And I said, well, I'm not I'm not going, <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan and... and uh, and they, you know, basically said, we're a young army and, and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed or you put your career in jeopardy. So somebody said I should go talk to my boss. And uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm. And uh, when I went in to see him, he mirrored the, the ideas of the, you know, psychiatrist, my colleagues. And then he said, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to, you know, thank you for coming to my father's memorial service. And I told him what I just shared with your listeners, uh, that, you know, I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving. And his whole countenance changed. And he said, I just got a call from Iowa from my family priest. And he said, your mother is leaving the gas on the stove. What do you want to do? And you see, here you have uh, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide, particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance. And he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenging, uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And... Um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan. And the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns. And, and off I went for a wonderful postdoc in Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory. So that's a quick intro into how I got into this. You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on uh, health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs 
of uh, the the grain segment of American population, and yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight. As you hear, a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, serving now as associate professor at the School of Social Work and Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how do you uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors? Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.